social media as a tool for social justice. It sounds great, doesn't it? So does the term keyboard warriors. Holding political leadership accountable, using whichever platform as a forum for debate and discussion, mobilizing against socio-economic injustices, the list goes on. But are youth utilizing their freedom of expression on social media to the fullest extent in speaking out? Or are too many of them crossing the line into extremism and incitement to violence and the untrammeled spread of inf disinformation? And what happens when the threat of regulation comes into the picture? We all know that even offensive, shocking and disturbing speech isn't necessarily a danger to public order or a prompt to incitement to violence. But many governments will look for excuses to regulate and even shut down the internet and point to a radicalized youth abusing their free speech as the reason. So how does the youth beat back the attempts to silence dissent and use social media for the greater good? With me today to explore some of these burning questions are Bertha Tobias, youth leader and speaker, and Dr. Philip Santos, senior lecturer in the Department of Communication at the Namibia University of Science and Technology. I'm Gwen Lister, your host of this 25th episode of our popular Free Speak podcast, in which we took look at all things media. Welcome to you both. And let's dive straight in. First of all, to Bertha. And I must say, before I start with the actual question, I believe that congratulations are in order. I believe that the Shut It All Down movement has been given an award by the African Union Envoy. And I believe there's been a bit of money involved in that award too. So that leads into my first question, which is really for you to indicate to us ways and means that the youth can and have made a transformative difference in their societies by campaigning for just causes on social media. Bertha, maybe you could give us some social justice issues that you think are most prominent among the Namibian youth, and I suppose the Shut It All Down movement is one of them, primarily um, a woman-driven movement, um, can you share some of the campaigns you've been involved in or know about that have brought about change? All right. Thank you so much for the question, Gwen, and thank you so much for having me. Um, so just on that very backdrop, right, of hashtag shut it all down, I think that's a great starting point, as you've rightly mentioned, when we talk about youth beginning to understand um, that they do have power when they mobilize and band together. While obviously that power comes with the dangers of, as you pointed out once again, radicalization, I think what we've seen increasingly um, in 2020 and 2019 is we've seen slut-shame Right. Um, you know, we've seen VCRC, we've seen outright Namibia, we've seen sister Namibia, and all of these are primarily youth-led movements. But I think what's more 
profound or, or, or fascinating particularly is the fact that many, you know, there's this quote that I recently read, right, that says there's nothing more powerful than a group of people doing something just because they want to do it. Right. Um, and I think on that very backdrop, Namibian youth right now have decided that they want to be involved, they want to be engaged. Um, and what we've seen, obviously, and, and I think most recently with Shut It All Down um, and with the abortion protests right. and with the protests on racism and hashtag gallows must fall. All of these were movements and initiatives led by young people who understand that one, they can mobilize to the, the scope of influencing policy and decision making and, and sort of shaping the national discourse and dialogue and subsequent action is not mutually exclusive from the space in which they operate. Absolutely. So I think what's been beautiful to observe from Namibian youth is them Understand, and I think this is something we're going to touch on later, is understanding that there's a certain power that we have, and conventionally and historically, it has arguably been inconsistent with the spaces in which policy is made. But how do we influence that policy? That's why you see young people going to shut down parliament. Right. Um, it's that confrontation, I think, that... that really communicates that young people understand that there's a need to bridge that gap and that they have the power to bridge that gap. Before I turn to Philip, uh, Bertha, I wonder if I could ask you, what in your view, and you've named a lot of these campaigns, what have, has been perhaps the, mo <coughs> the most successful? And why do you think that has been? What has captured, if you want, the imagination of the youth in terms of these, all these various hashtag protests? Right. So I can think of two big ones. I mean, obviously, shut it all down. Right. Is, is, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that. Um, and the slut shame walk, I believe that happened in late 2019. Um, one, and I think this speaks to the first part of your question as well, is what youth is currently concerned with. And that's women's rights in Namibia. And I'm seeing women come to the forefront here, I definitely, must say. Definitely, definitely. Yes. It's women's yes. rights and it's gender-based violence. Um, and I think why that has been successful has been two main things, Gwen. One, it's centered around an ideology that is almost intuitively appealing um, to lots of young people, given the social pandemic that we're facing, which is gender-based violence. Right. So that's it. But secondly, I think it's been allowing any and all kinds and forms of young people to really take ownership of these movements. So persisting in the narrative that shut it all down or slut shame walk is essentially faceless and leaderless. Right. While there's the argument that, well, we all know there's a leader. Sure. Yeah, sure, that's true. But pushing the narrative to say that, no, it's leaderless and anybody can take ownership of it. Anybody can organize a protest and it will be legitimate and valid and acknowledged. I think that's made these particular movements powerful because you decentralize the leadership, which is obviously a feature that, that is not fully present in sort of formal, organized partisan politics. Right, and it definitely gives guidance, I think, to the youth on the way forward. Definitely. And how to uh, mobilize online protests. Um, <clears throat> Philip, we're essentially talking here about social justice. Um, and then there's a need, I think, for us to develop a broader understanding of this concept of social justice. Can you perhaps elaborate on this and maybe as you do so help us differentiate perhaps between the topics of youth activism and radicalization online. Okay. Let me thank you, Gwen, and thank you for inviting me on this podcast. Let me start by addressing the second part of the question, uh, which is the differentiation between radicalization and activism. Mm -hmm. Personally, I don't see a difference between the two. I see okay. them as um, elements that can be placed in a continuum with... Um, Radic radicalization 
itself have in a continuum mm-hmm. between uh, existing sort of between what is acceptable and what is probably seen by general societies unacceptable right so radical politics is not apath- it's, it's you can't dissociate it from democratic politics it's part and parcel of democratic politics especially where social justice issues are concerned but radicalization which is associated with say fundamentalist politics the sort of politics that we saw undergird in say the ISIS movements Boko Haram right. Al Shabaab and things like that is the one that is probably toxic or, or QAnon for that matter yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, i i wouldn't separate them activism can also be thought of in the same ways uh, is activism which is definitely consistent with democratic practices and then activism which may cross certain boundaries that um, even people whose idea of democracy is very loose may not be comfortable mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. so rather than separate them probably we could place them in a continuum and say okay what sorts of radical politics is acceptable and what sorts of activism is acceptable within right. the parameters of democratic politics. Okay. Then coming to uh social justice probably I'll draw on two uh conceptions one which is associated with Nancy Fraser's thought and one which is associated with uh, Axel Honneth. Nancy Fraser argues that um uh social justice is literally just a question of parity of participation. Mm-hmm. In other words the way the economy the way the cultural sphere and the way uh political participation or representation is organized in society must mm-hmm. be such that these three dimensions do not limit the participation of an individual in public life right but honeth uh, sees this as a problem because participation becomes the starting point of thinking about social justice and for him it shouldn't be the starting point the starting point should be the individual so the individual uh, must be accorded for him love uh, esteem um uh and recognition uh so that once the individual is is endowed with these um uh let's say rights or affordances then their participation in public life is already guaranteed to be uh i think egalitarian or, or they are going to be respected as a fully fledged individual uh not just an individual but an individual who also has a choice to belong to particular social right. groups i get that and that mm-hmm. social group must then be accorded those uh uh affordances within the dimensions of the economy the cultural sphere and also political representation yeah thank you for yeah. that philip because i think it's very important you know we we use terms like social justice without really giving them or interrogating them as to their actual meaning so i think those two um alternate points of view that you've put across will give people something to think about in that context but also turning back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier Bertha and that was the issue of information cocoons or what are also called I think echo chambers uh where um people parrot views and ideas according to their own prejudices um do you think the youth are susceptible to this or do you feel that in these movements which have been so successful the majority of youth are exercising independent thought and action right so i think there's two parts to that question um the first do i think young people are susceptible to it yes and no 
So yes, because I think young people generally have, uh, I guess, a more intensive understanding of their access to information, um, access to information that right. goes beyond the scope of their immediate context. Okay. So yes, in that regard, because I think the more information you come across, the more susceptible you are to sort of um, look for information that confirms what you are already looking to confirm. Right. No, because I think... Um, sort of susceptibility to groupthink is not exclusive to young people. I think it's um, it's applicable and or possible to thrive, uh, for, for groupthink to thrive in any group that has that is centered around very strong ideologies that are very appealing and that are very compelling. Right. So yes and no in that regard. The second part of your question is a lot more interesting because I think um, that's a lesson that I personally learned and I think a lot of other people learned as well during hashtag shut it all down and mm -hmm. all other movements, which is sort of how much individual intellectual agency do you have and are you allowed to exercise right. when you are explicitly part of a specific movement? And I think a brilliant example of this that we see is, let's take shut it all down again as a prime example, right? Where we look at, okay... There's, there's obviously a spectrum there. There's young people who are on the extreme end who want to burn it all down and literally shut it all down to the ground and start again. There's young people who believe they can collaborate with sort of existing structures. Exactly. Um, those are seen as mm. sellouts. They're seen as being successfully having been co-opted. So then that begs the question of how do you go about ensuring credibility within a movement when at the core they, you sh share certain values and principles, but in terms of maybe execution or articulation of those values, there's a difference. Right. So I think because of, of, you know, the human nature, I guess, the fundamental human nature to connect and to feel part of a group and to feel belonging and love and acceptance, as mm -hmm. rightly pointed out, mm -hmm. yes, there is a susceptibility in particularly radical, bordering on fundamentalist uh, politics or, or ideologies or movements to kind of self-betray when you are more on the conservative side of executing what is is a probably left-wing kind of, of body of thinking. Um, so I think definitely in that fear of being cast as a sellout, there is a susceptibility to subscribing to groupthink or subscribing to a particular set of principles of execution that you don't necessarily agree with. Right. Uh, yeah. I've also, um, you probably know better than me, uh, both of you, that I read about recently and I really cannot think of the name, but I believe there's now an app out, uh, which can measure um, the kind of news and information that you are accessing online. And apparently it gives some kind of barometer, uh, uh, indicates red when you kind of exactly trying to confirm your own prejudices and offering you different alternatives in terms of information to give you a slightly broader uh, view. So that's quite interesting and ties in with, with, with that. Um, Maybe I think if we look at the African continent, for example, Uganda is probably such a glaring example of what not to do um, with the internet. Um, obviously, it's been in the recent elections. Social media was a major platform um, on which the opposition and supporters of the youthful musician Bobby Wine, um, who was challenging the old Museveni presidency, and literally it is old, uh, were able to expose the violent acts of ruling party members, advocate for social change, and organize against the excesses of power. But Museveni, whose supporters were then targeted online, much like uh, uh, Trump was and shut down, uh, hit back immediately and just shut it all down. Isn't this, Philip, 
a good indicator that regulation, and there's yeah. a lot of talk around regulation yeah. for all the reasons yeah. Yeah. we've mentioned, yeah. is simply used to target political dissent, yeah. which is fully within the bounds of free expression. Yes. Your views. Yeah. I, I regulation is a touchy topic. It's a touchy uh, topic, yeah. <laughs> and uh, also complex for me. I think um, it's, 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 it shouldn't be read in black or white kind of uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, what Uganda is a very extreme case. Uh, is it, it, it? It's a very tricky reference point for thinking about regulation. We expect um, uh, polities that are of an authoritarian bent to react in the manner that uh, uh, the M7 government reacted, which is to literally just uh, disable all communicative platforms that would uh, sort of enable citizens to interact among each other. But regulation for me must be again thought of within a continuum uh, which is to look at regulation which is acceptable and regulation which is completely unacceptable. Regulation that is not consistent with the democratic principles as specified in national constitutions and which is not consistent with international instruments that generally guide how local legal frameworks are framed is not a good thing. But regulation which is uh, put in place to enhance democratic politics uh-huh. is for me a good thing for instance regulation that would um, um, sort of curtail uh head driven uh politics for instance the kind that you find uh in africa i think around ethnicity i did a study in 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 zim on how uh, a particular group on facebook for instance uh, sort of drove people apart from each other right. uh, along ethnic lines. So the more they spoke, the more they interacted, the more they uh, sort of fell apart. Right, the so sort they, of specter of Rwanda. Uh, the, 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 that kind of thing. Yeah. So the, the, once someone says something, this one takes a more extreme position, a more extreme position like that, like that, right. to a point where they literally started threatening to kill each other to hunt each other down and so forth and so forth. Okay. Uh, that kind of thing, I don't think, uh, even if we want to try and justify uh, free speech, right. would be consistent with, with the democratic polities because right. uh, unguarded, it can easily lead to people dying and, and other right. bad things right. happening. Uh, but regulation that would make the sorts of uh, activities that uh, Beta has just highlighted yes. impossible to, 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 to flourish right. is bad. wouldn't be a good thing for democracy at all. So some, have, some, some, some people have proposed what they refer to as regulated regulation. Yeah. So you regulate, but that regulation must also be regulated in such a way that it doesn't threaten uh, democratic politics as provided by within, say, a constitutional framework or right. by international instruments right. which um, uh, within which to think about how to enhance free speech, free right. interaction, uh, uh, and freedom of association, and so on and so on. Okay. I'm tempted to go down this regulation path because it's a very fascinating yeah. uh, discussion, as you say. And um, 
I've got a lot of personal feelings about it because, of course, who does the regulation is a very critical question. Very. And given the immediacy of social media, yeah. by the time you've regulated an issue, it's already out there. So yeah. there's kind of a lot to discuss. But yeah. let me quickly turn to, to Bertha. Um, you know, I think... Obviously, we want it to be our aim, and I think Philip has alluded the, uh, to this, to make it possible for youth and activists to find voice and to find community, while at the same time curbing and preventing saboteurs, if you want to call them that, and extremist groups from mobilizing and organizing. Um, and though, although it's kind of at the heart of the regulatory challenge, many believe that people who are online entertaining extremist views, and I mentioned this earlier, aren't necessarily going to mobilize in real life. The other aspect that I read about was someone described the internet like a, a, a car. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of car accidents, but because they're car accidents, we're not going to say we're going to do away with cars because we all need them and basically they're useful. And I found that quite an interesting analogy vis-a-vis -vis the internet, which again gives a lot of good and must we now clamp down on it for the sake of those perhaps few uh, exceptions out there that are driving things to a violent conclusion. Bertha, would you like to yeah. give your opinion on that? Yeah, definitely. So one, um, as I'm listening to Philip speak, I think um, the idea of regulated regulation, I, I love that um, mm. because I think it beautifully articulates uh, my, my own thinking just about regulation and how I think regulation would be sort of acceptable in cases where sort of the, the speech that is being cultivated is one which directly harms the danger and immediately endangers a particular group or fundamentally undermines the sanctity of life of a particular group or a specific kind of individual. Um, so I think regulated regulation would be the answer. But what I do want to say uh, with the first part of your question, Gwen, about, you know, the... I don't think we should undermine the possibility of online violence to manifest into off sort of offline violence or into right. real life consequences okay. um, for two reasons. One, because as we've mentioned earlier, I think ideology, I'd say, is the most powerful force um, in the world. I think that's what keeps communities together and that's what drives people apart along different kinds of, of lines, whether it's ethnic or racial. So I think there's two ways in which... Um, online violence and the incitement thereof can translate offline. Just the first one being, you never know who's watching, you never know sure. who's listening, sure. you never know who's witnessing an ongoing conversation or an ongoing exchange of particular ideas. And I think um, specifically within the context of social justice, when you normalize and allow a certain kind of discourse which fundamentally undermines the, the sanctity of a particular group or the humanity of a particular exactly. group, you run the risk of um, not directly inciting violence, but you run the risk of not, I think, having taken early measures to protect that group because exactly. of whoever's watching. Um, and secondly, it's not lost on me right now as we're having this conversation that even shut it all down started with a single tweet where someone said, we need to do something. What can we do? Right. And within the span of 24 hours, they were, the central business district was literally shut down. So while that not might not have been you know, fundamentally violent at its core, or at least the ideology that was driving it, that definitely shows us the power of social media. Because what I think it does is not only does it give you the platform to kind of engage and learn and unlearn, but it also allows people 
to confirm their biases. And this Correct. goes to the app that you're talking about. Correct. And once that bias is confirmed, then you realize that, you know what? There's hundreds of other people who think this way. Where do I put my effort and where do I put my energy to sort of amplify whatever this cause is in real life? Then you have movements like Shut It All Down or like Slut Shame Walk. Um, and then you have violence and confrontations. And I think with that said, um, I don't. I think we should be hypersensitive and and really alert to what goes online, and that doesn't necessarily mean regulation, obviously, because that I think has very very real life consequences. I mean, okay. and just to bring it back home, sorry, and just very quickly to mm. make it more, you know, I guess contemporary or yeah. relevant or whatever. We saw last week, I believe, or two weeks ago, when a famous um, celebrity Namibia was literally being dragged for one tweet that seemed that. even, yeah, slightly homophobic. Right. Um, and it wasn't explicitly so, not to say that that's justifiable, right. but a follow-up tweet to that was the reason we had to come so strongly at this is, again, you don't know who's watching, you don't know who subscribes to the credibility of that person's platform. Absolutely. Um, and just shortly after that, we saw, you know, a, a famous comedian in Namibia was attacked because of their sexuality. And that's not to say that necessarily there's a, a cause and effect relationship there, yeah. but it is to say that what we do online has real-life consequences. Absolutely. And this kind of concept of mob justice uh, online, I've seen it happen. And I mean, it, it, it can get pretty ugly, let's face it, um, where they go after someone and it may at times even be a very innocent comment that has sparked the kind of reaction. One person says it. Again, I br I'm thinking in the back of my mind about anonymous accounts. It always bothers me and I know we can't do away with them in their entirety, but I always like to think in a democracy, the more people who speak out under their own names and with their own voices, it always also gives one, I think, a little bit more, uh, can I say one's more thoughtful before we put our words um, uh, online and, and those anonymous counts are often out there just to stir it up and it seems people don't recognize the difference between an authentic voice and somebody who is behind the scenes really whipping up and that happens as well. Um, sentiments for one reason or another, whether it's misogyny or whatever it may be. Um, Philip, just a quick question there. Look, uh, often I think of uh, violent extremism is not an invention of social media or the internet. Yes. So if we took it all away, <laughs> yeah. would it stop happening? Absolutely not. I, I mean, the, the social media is just a... A, I think a, a mediating platform. It's a platform for mediation. Of course, media um, to some degree are political actors. Mm. They, they, they do things uh, or, or discourses that play out on, on, on media in general and mm. social media in particular right. may translate into political action. But by and large, what happens in the media is actually the venting of what is already a problem in society. It's not invented at the level of mediation. So mediation is pretty much what makes what is already happening in society exactly. visible. Right. So to blame uh, social media or any other media for that matter, for what is happening in society would be to overplay the agents of the media in shaping political, mm. social political action and things exactly. like that. Uh, so I, 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 I don't think uh, that we can attribute um, uh, bad things that happen in society Correct. solely to the media, although we cannot discount the media's agency. We don't know to what degree 
but certainly there would be some degree to which uh, the media itself can catalyze right. or inflame particular scenarios that are already there right. um, uh, and things like that. And in many ways, we should be actually looking at what's happening in our own societies yeah. before we look at what yeah. is happening or tackling what is happening online. Yeah. Because definitely I would think the one prompts the other to a larger extent, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Philip, perhaps just to add on to that before I turn to Bertha, this issue about regulation, and I've heard you about regulating the regulators. Yeah. So whether it is governments, whether it is the tech giants, yeah. or whether it is civil society in some way regulating the regulators, yeah. um, couldn't this end up limiting freedom of expression? I'm worried about this regulation concept, and yeah. I think you can hear that. Yeah. Well, what are your views on that? Because where do we find the ideal recipe or solution? And the yeah. other thing is, of course, just to bring in, everybody seems to look at the U.S., the U.S. Yeah. strategies around uh, yeah. regulation, and we keep referring back to the Trump example and so yeah. on, is what speaks to what we're doing in the rest of the world. And that's not right because we're mm -hmm. all very different yeah. in our own environments online yeah. and offline. Yeah. And so is it a one solution fits all yeah. or do we really need to look at national yeah. or regional solutions to this problem? Absolutely. I think the context matters mm -hmm. uh, in a very, very significant way. Uh, you, you want to look at what the contextual dynamics are and how these shape the way society uh, relates with the media and the other way around. Uh, and I think the U.S. Uh, is an example of how failed mm -hmm. regulation can is actually, th yes. throw things into out of control, literally. So, I mean, the situation where we find ourselves in now is much more dangerous than when you have publicly accountable institutions uh, spearheading regulatory uh, activities right. than to have a private company or a company mm -hmm. uh, which is not accountable to citizens deciding what voices to plug out and what Absolutely. voices to leave um, playing out in the public sphere. And, and uh, I, I understand people may sympathize with the Twitter's uh, switching off of Trump's account. But if you look at the Australian example now, the the, the, the the dangers of leaving these decisions to companies becomes that much more uh, clearer. Because in Australia, what Facebook did was to plug out news organizations, uh, even stories that were about the pandemic. That So when Australians woke up on that day when Facebook decided to plug out right. these things, uh, Australians couldn't access news. I mean, news feeds through Absolutely. Facebook. Absolutely, yes. Uh, this is this is deadly serious. I mean, if sure. if 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 you are to think about the impact of regulation when left to special institutions that are not accountable to uh, to citizens, exactly. At least if um, regulatory activities. Um, are conducted by institutions which are accountable to um, to the public through maybe parliament or some other such setups. Uh, it can always be revisited every now and then and adjusted to the situation as it pertains on the ground uh, uh, in relation to the context within which this is happening. Right. Uh, albeit that must be done 
in a, in a way that is so minimalist in terms of its potential to restrict uh, expression. Yeah, that's a good point, Philip. Thank you for that. Bertha, also just quickly turning back to, because we're going to have to come to an end very quickly, um, turning back to the issue of all these great campaigns that the Namibian youth have, have, have been waging online. Um, I often ask myself the question when I see these campaigns happening, whether it's around GBV or abortion or whatever, are the political leadership really listening? This often bothers me. Because as you know, they make sporadic inroads into social media and you'll suddenly see one minister's on and interacting quite frequently. A couple of people may come after him for one or other thing that he's done and suddenly he's gone back and he's withdrawn his account or it's dormant. And so it, it bothers me that the youth may be using this forum uh, to speak out about, again, um, social justice, uh, but then the very people we're trying to talk to have um, withdrawn into silence. What, or what are your perceptions around this and what could be done to encourage them? There are one or two. We all know the justice minister, for example, is, is one of the better uh, political figures who is ask, answering most of the questions that come her way. But I'm kind of watching nervously because as soon as something happens and people really go after her and the act that's currently been passed that is so controversial uh, before Parliament is one of those examples, if that happens, that she may also decide, I'm off social media, I'm not taking this. What are, Quick thoughts around that before we conclude. Right. So I think, um, so this is so complex, I believe, mm. because it speaks to, I think it, it very importantly and significantly speaks to different demographics, age demographics specifically, and their level of comfort in engaging in a particular kind of environment and or medium. So obviously the youth are more tech savvy. Lots of our conversations take place on Twitter. A lot of our learning and national dialogue among the youth take, takes place on social media. Um, whereas obviously that's not the case with, with formal organized partisan politics. Um, so I think what would be important to look at there is where is the world headed? Not just right. the, the international community, but just what makes the most sense in an increasingly digitalized mm. world. Um, and it's obvious that it's the internet and it's obvious that that's where the magic happens essentially. Right. Um, so to that, obviously, as a young person who's biased because I'm a young person, it's get with the program, right? To, to sure. political figures who are not on the internet. Sure. Um, and you know, this makes me think of a very pivotal discussion point as well that was raised by lots of young people last year during the hashtag shut it all down protests, which is to say, Okay, the statistics show that a lot of people who are, a lot of gender-based violence victims, for example, mm -hmm. um, are young women. So where do you find lots of young women? You can find them on the internet. Right. So why is that information not accessible? Why, for example, is the Twitter account of the Ministry of Gender you know, not active um, when that's a rife and a really valuable opportunity to share information. Correct. So I think that's what makes it complex, really, is there is a, a, um, a reluctance almost by 
formal organized politics to not engage in social media not just because of the lack of familiarity but also i think the you know there's a certain degree of protection that comes from hiding from social media Certainly. because you don't have a responsibility or Certainly. an obligation to have a an account on, on on you know any social media platform um and i think that leads to frustration and that's why young people go to the parliament gardens and shut things down because where else can we reach you sure. okay. um yeah that's because a good point. yeah 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 so mm. the bureaucracy so young people are frustrated by the bureaucracy and i think politicians would be frustrated by the immediacy um because that immediately sort of the immediacy of social media challenges and interrogates the um, the bureaucracy that they can usually hide behind or the terminology and the red tape um so there's that too but i'd say just get with the program um or they will i think i i anticipate and foresee just increased frustrations and more division which is not going to breed anything meaningful in the exactly. long run exactly some yeah. really excellent points there bertha as we come to the end i think there's certainly the three of us sitting here agree that social media is a tool that can help the youth achieve social justice and also help democracy work better it's also i think an ideal medium to convey information so less in my view is definitely more when it comes to issues like regulation at the same time it's very important to empower our young people so here i want to look at the users um on the secure use of the internet as well as the need for civil behavior because it all i'd like to think people would in a way subscribe to a code of conduct before they go online so that our regulation happens proactively rather than after the fact so that they learn how to conduct discourse and to disagree and do so vehemently if possible but also just to I don't want to use the word respect because the politicians use it all the time but I think what civil behavior speaks to that um and also to learn to distinguish very importantly between truth and falsehood um in their activism and spurn disinformation so last question to both of you how do we go about doing this because as i say there's a lot of great things happening on the internet that the youth are doing there's also some big negatives how do we address this whole issue just a couple of lines from the both of you to end us off okay i mean social media are now such a vast uh, yeah. platform uh, through which public discourse is playing out and to think of an all encompassing regulatory framework for social media is almost impossible uh, uh and i think as you rightly point out and as beth has also highlighted it's a it's a very good thing that the youth are now so engaged in politics and and public conversations which is something that we're lamenting absolutely uh, just before the onset of this social media Certainly. going backwards Certainly. um but i think coming to the question that you've asked micro environments with on social media can be the starting point for thinking about how to cultivate rich discourse which is within the bounds of what we may refer to as civil. So, uh, so for instance if there is a group it must have some framework through which to regulate not regulate that's not a, Yeah, I know to, what you mean. Through which exactly. to define discourse right. without using those terms which you rightly point out may end up uh policing the conversation. Correct. We don't want to police the conversation but to sort of at least keep it within what 
everyone may agree is civil discourse. Right. Although we may have different ideas, but at least those ideas must be expressed Shared in ways that a... recognize the other. Exactly. Yes. My my rights end where yours begin yes. kind of approach. Both yeah. last thoughts from right. you. Right. So very quickly, um so I think with the with the idea of security and and respectability, I'm also using that term very reluctantly, okay. mm. um, is important to look at, okay, which demographic or which age group of young people are primarily engaged in issues of national discourse. Right. Um, I like to actively reject the narrative that young people are sort of clueless children who need to be, you know, taught about how to respect other certainly, people. Certainly. I think if you have a 20-year-old being explicitly disrespectful um, and being sort of explicitly just, you know, it, it Inflame, inflammatory on social media. They need to be held accountable just like everybody else um, as opposed to being treated like a child simply because they're quote-unquote young. Exactly. Um, and just last, the last angle to answer that question about the angles through which we can engage each other, I think the idea of civil discourse specifically within the context of Namibia is very touchy um, because it, it, it reminds us almost of a collective trauma that young people have which is the consistent use of respectability politics to not hold government officials or to not hold institutions accountable when they should be accountable to citizenry. Um, and I think it even goes back to social and historical, histor very historically significant ideas about what does civilization mean, mm. um, who gets to define what that looks like, and why is their definition valid and legitimate enough for everyone to have to subscribe to. Um, so I think, if anything, uh, the bottom line, I think, is there should be respect should characterize a conversation and by respect i don't mean the ceremonious respectability Quite. that namibians often and subscribe the honorables to. and, the and so the, on. i mean respect for yeah. humanity respect for discourse respect for reaching a meaningful maybe not consensus but some form of meaningful conversation exactly. we both walk away with something meaningful yeah. anything outside of that i think individuals need to be held accountable but i think we need to stay away from what respectable civil conversation looks like because quite frankly different groups that looks differently for different groups as long as the outcome um, is some meaningful engagement in the end right i think that's a perfect note to end this podcast on bertha philip thank you so much for what's been a fascinating discussion thank you thank you both thank you